Well, tonight we're going to, I'm going to anchor my comments out of the book of Zechariah chapter 12, but I'm going to come back again next week to Zechariah 12 because I feel like we need to almost take just a moment and because this gets, the more we get deeper into this, we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about end time prophecies, and I'd like to talk to you for just a few minutes this evening about the purpose of prophecy. Keith has prayed for us. I believe the Lord is going to help us to understand and, and grow in our wisdom and knowledge. You know, as a child and as a teenager, I, I grew up on preachers who come in with large charts. And I remember sitting down with my father-in-law as a young pastor looking in his library. You know, I had a few books and he had this nice library of books. And I found a book of charts and I pulled it out and I was like, wow, here is the key to understanding prophecy. And I looked at my father-in-law and I said, Pop, how do you understand this? How do, what's the key to looking at this? And he looked at that and he said, I bought that book years ago and I gave up a long time ago trying to understand it. You just simply can't put the Bible on one little chart and pigeonhole God and pigeonhole everything right there. But what I'd like to do is to maybe just give you some ideas from the Bible tonight of what God's Word says the purpose of prophecy is. So let's begin tonight with Zechariah chapter 12, and we'll look at the first three verses. This message, or this burden, this oracle, this is the second burden that, that Zechariah is going to say he has. This message concerning the fate of Israel came from the Lord. This message is from the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, and formed the human spirit. I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink that makes the nearby nations stagger when they send their armies to besiege Jerusalem and Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock, and all the nations will gather against it to try to move it, but it will only hurt themselves. And I can remember as a young person distinctly hearing a prophecy preacher refer to this verse but he didn't preach from the book of Zechariah. He didn't even preach from the book of Zechariah uh, chapter 12. And oftentimes, I've even heard it in movies. I've heard it in documentaries. When somebody talks about Israel, they say, God says he'll make a stumbling block. Well, this is one of those times when context is important. Context and the holistic look view of what the Word of God says. And also understanding the history, both past, present, and future. Because these first three verses culminate in verse 11. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning for Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. In other words, we're looking at prophecy that's going to be taking place at the very end of time. In verse 8, let's just back up for just a minute. In verse 8, on that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be like as mighty as King David. The royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. For on that day, I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now listen, this is, this is great in verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look for me on whom they have pierced and mourned for him as an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. You've heard that passage in your New Testaments. You've heard that prophetically in the book of Zechariah. Now you've seen it fulfilled in the New Testament, but you'll hear it referred to again as well. 
So when you think about prophecy, I think one of the important things to remember about prophecy is this. Prophecy should always lead us to praise and worship the Lord. Prophecy should always lead us to praise and worship the Lord. Let me say that again. Prophetic preaching ought to always lead us to praise and worship the Lord. What God is saying here in these first three verses is he's looking at and he's telling us about God's creation and consummation of Israel and the nations. God tells us three very, very important things in that verse. And if you want to circle this in your outline in the, in, in the first three verses there, God says, I stretched out the heavens. Next, he says, I laid the foundations of the earth. And then he says, I formed the human spirit. Those are three great, three great creative acts of God. And remember, for 23 years as your pastor and then in all of my previous ministry, I've always told people, if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to understand the first three chapters of Genesis. So right here in prophetic preaching and understanding, God refers us to those three great creative acts that we need to look at. Now, one of the things that I think is important as we talk about this tonight, and, and this is huge, because I have read a lot of prophecy books over the years. Occasionally, when someone has passed away here at Woodland, somebody in the family will ask me, would you like to have some of the books from their library? Would you like to have their books? And I'm always grateful for that. But um, even tonight in this room, there's someone here that I got books from their library, and people love to read about prophecy. But one of the struggles I have with contemporary prof prophecy writers and prophecy preachers is they're writing about things so confidently that are happening so far away, and they're laying out an exact timetable that the Bible doesn't give us. These are happening in lands where Christians are being persecuted, Jews are being persecuted. I can remember when I first started working in South America in the 1980s, when I first started working down there, even the Protestants were severely persecuted by the Catholic Church. We were planting a church in Obligado, Paraguay, and right outside, and, and my American Catholic friends were not like this. I had conversations with them when they, they were shocked and appalled to hear what I'm going to tell you. But right outside the church we were planting in Obligado, there was a, a Catholic priest that was telling people that we were molesting children and raping women inside, which stirred up a whole community against us and against the pastor of the church. In another town that we planted a church in in Paraguay, they tarred and feathered, led by the Catholic priest, they tarred and feathered the pastor of the excuse me, the man who sold us the land to build the church upon. So my point is saying is, it's very easy to write very confidently about prophetic events and how they're going to play out by reading the newspaper into the Bible. It's much better, I think, to take the principles that I'm giving you in this chapter tonight and understand, yes, prophecy is being fulfilled in our day, but let's don't try to be so confident from our air-conditioned churches, from our air-conditioned homes, with our multiple study Bibles and in our books. You know, I've been around long enough. Oil was going to cause Armageddon. Some of you are old enough to remember that. It was going to be oil. And now America has reason our gas prices are so high tonight is not because there's a shortage of oil. This is not political. I'm not a policymaker. It's not because there's a shortage of oil. It's a supply and demand problem. 
We've got the supply, but the government's not letting us pump the oil that we have in the ground. The government's not letting us finish two pipelines that would bring our gas prices, our utility prices, and our grocery prices back down. That didn't cost you a thing right there, but that's a little Econ 101 for you right there. It's a supply and demand problem. But oil wasn't what's going to cause it. And today we find out that there's so many more things that are happening we never dreamed of 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, one man wrote a, Bible, wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 1988. Jesus didn't come. So he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 19. And people were silly enough to buy that book. This is why I want to give you these principles so when you read your Bible, when you read your Bible, you'll have some principles to read prophetic passages with and when you hear prophecy preaching, you'll have some principles to understand them with them. Now, I can sum up, I've told you before, I can sum up my theology like this. When he comes, I go. Okay? When Jesus comes, I'm out of here. When he comes, I go. I know that's not going to sell a lot of books, but that's just as simple as it is. When the trumpet sounds, I'm going to rise so high. Come on, victory. I'm getting excited thinking about it tonight. Second thing you need to see there is not only God's creation culmination of the nations, but in those first three verses, you see God's global dominion. God is in charge. Nothing is happening in the world that God is not in charge of. And the third thing that you see in this chapter tonight, and it's all, this should always be the goal of, of prophetic preaching, God not only has the power, but he has the passion to save lost people. God only not ha has the power, but he has the passion to save lost people. Jesus, look at these two passages of Scripture. Jesus says, mark my words. Now, this is before Calvary. This is the Last Supper. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Look at me for just a second. Jesus knew he was going to die for our sins. He knew he was going to rise on the third day. And he knew that at the right time, a time not known to him, but a time known to the Father, he would come again. And he said, there's going to be a wedding supper that you and I are going to be a part of. And then he will drink the juice of the vine with us again. That's the reason Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death. Circle this until he comes again. Circle that until he comes again. Do you know what we're saying? Every time we take communion on Sunday mornings, we're saying, come on, victory. That's exactly what we're saying. We're looking up to the heavens. We're testifying to the world. Jesus is coming one more time. So for the church, prophecy is optimistic, not fatalistic. For the church, prophecy is optimistic. It's not fatalistic. I have a problem with prophetic preaching and when I talk about prophetic preaching, I'm talking about end-time preaching. Prophetic preaching that is, that is negative, that, that, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Prophetic preaching is optimistic because God always is calling people to a decision. When I preach about prophecy on a Sunday morning, I'm doing more teaching tonight, but when I preach about prophecy on a Sunday morning, I'm calling people to follow Christ. I'm calling Christians to be passionate followers of Christ. I'm calling lost people to put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm calling those who haven't really stopped to think about it, say, listen, there is a pattern. Something is going on in our world. You need to at least think about this. Even if you don't commit your life to Jesus, you need to give serious consideration because God always gives us an option. You can choose God's way, you can choose your way, or you can choose the world's way. 
but only God's way leads to life. It's the reason the scripture said there is a way that leads to life. Few there are that find it, but the path that leads to destruction is broad, the scripture says. Do you remember Nineveh? Do you remember the story of Jonah and Nineveh? Jonah was doing prophetic preaching. He's saying, unless you repent, this is what God is going to do. Well, the people repented, and Jonah got mad about it. Can you imagine me getting mad about, uh, was it four people that got saved Sunday morning here at our church? The week before, we was, uh, there were several more that got saved here. At our, can you imagine me getting mad about that? But Jonah got mad. You know why he got mad? He said, Lord, I preached all these things you were going to do, and I knew you would give them an option, and now I look like a fool because you're not doing it. You know, never be concerned about how you look. Always be concerned for the glory of the Lord. The problem that Jonah didn't see was that later another generation of Ninevites would turn their backs upon the Lord, and God did bring the judgments, he said. So let's look at some things that should help us understand prophetic preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. That's the goal of prophetic preaching, is that people would realize it's not the church that's going to be supreme, it's Jesus that's going to be supreme. We put our faith in him. Look at what the apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we talked about this at length when I went through the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter. We have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Underline that, greater confidence. Have confidence in the book of Zechariah. Peter goes on, Pastor Peter goes on to say, you must pay close attention to what they wrote. And I commend you for being a part of these messages on Wednesday nights as we talk about the book of Zechariah. Because the word of God says, pay close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in dark places. Look at me for just a second. Prophetic preaching should never discourage us. Prophetic preaching should be like a flashlight or a torch or a... Or, or a Lighthouse, a spotlight shining out in the dark. That's what it should do. It should illuminate the path for us until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your heart. And above all, you must realize no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Listen, friends, Zechariah, these are left written for us as the word of the Lord Zechariah's words have proven true. It's the reason they're quoted so many times. This prophecy was written 600 years before Jesus was ever born. Think about that. What was it like in North America 600 years ago? Just stop and think of a, well, what would that be? Dick, 1422, you know, I, Becky and I were in a castle one time in Europe, and the castle was built in 1400-something, and it was just laying there in ruins. All there were were these great rocks and these stones laying there, and I remember looking at that castle and just thinking, what was happening in the United States 600 years ago? What was happening in, in Canada or other parts of the world? 600 years before this, they talking about the piercing of Christ's side, this prophecy was being written. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not shown us what we will, 
he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him, for we see him as he really is, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Prophetic preaching should always inspire us to live a holy life. If prophetic preaching, if all it does is it just titillates us, if prophetic preaching is all it does, it gives us something to argue about or to act like we know more than everybody else, I have missed my goal as a preacher. But prophetic preaching should always call us to live a holy life, to keep this hope alive in our hearts. When Dana and, the, and uh, three of our grandsons are here, and when I found out they were coming, it seems like the day started dragging by. Till they got, I just kept looking forward. I kept looking forward. And, you know, we were planning a trip to the zoo and this and that that we were going to do. Just getting ready for the boys to come here. Vacuuming is not my favorite thing to do. But Becky told me one night, she said, the boys will be here on such and such day. She says, would you vacuum the stairs, vacuum the upstairs, vacuum the downstairs? Would you take care and help me out? I go, yeah. Our carpets have never been vacuumed so well. I was eager. I was expecting those boys to come. When you're expecting Jesus to come, you want to get ready. I think it was Russ Taft that used to sing a song, People Get Ready, There's a Slow Train Coming, You Don't Need Any Ticket to Get On Board. Listen, Jesus is coming. That should excite us. So let me give you, if you went with me through the series on Revelation, I taught these six principles, but let me give you quickly, and then in our Q&A time, if you want to ask some questions or if you want to send me a message on Facebook or on our new website, or you can text me at 731-734-9310111, then I'll be happy to try and answer your questions. But six principles when it comes to prophecy. Idealist people approach the prophecies as just being timeless principles. Idealist people approach prophecy as being timeless principles. In other words, when they read prophecy, all they see is principles to live by. The historists see prophecy as a detailed map from the days of Jesus until his return. So the historist is not necessarily looking at Zechariah tonight as much as he's looking at the New Testament or she's looking at the New Testament. And he says, prophecy gives us a detailed map. I totally disagree with that. It doesn't give us a detailed map. And that's where a lot of preachers and teachers, I think, have missed it. And maybe a lot of secular writers have missed it trying to interpret the prophecies of Jesus. The preterist, they read the book of Revelation and the seven churches And they just want to read prophecy as they understood it. But these people who were preterists, they would also just look at Zechariah and they say, well, no, we don't need to look at this in the eyes of the church. We just need to look at it in the eyes of the people who heard Zechariah preaching. I disagree with that if that's all you're going to say. Yes, we need to look at it through the same eyes and the same lenses as much as possible that we can that the people that heard Zechariah preaching, but there's so much more. The futurists say there are some events that are waiting to be fulfilled. There are events that we've already read in the book of Zechariah tonight that have not been fulfilled yet, but they're going to be fulfilled. The eclectic, which is where I am at, how many of you know what that word eclectic means? little here, a little there. You know, eclectic is, it's a mixture of the idealist, the preterist, and the futurist. Okay? So I see the timeless principles. 
I see tonight that we need to understand it as the people who heard Zechariah preaching, as the people that would have heard Jesus when he was speaking, as they would have read the Gospels, as the early church would have read the Gospels, because when they read about the piercing, when that Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side, he had no idea he was fulfilling a prophecy that was written 600 years earlier. That's the reason I brought that time up. He had no idea, and yet that's recorded for us because the, under church, the early church understood that was prophecy being fulfilled. But I'm also a futurist. I recognize there's some of these things that haven't been fulfilled, like the Battle of Armageddon, and we'll talk about that a little more next week. Symbolism, if you have a basic understanding of your Old Testament, then this helps you because you do understand that there is some symbolism here that's not to be taken literally, but is to be understood as the Bible uses the symbolism. For instance, we see the bread and the wine when we take communion, not as becoming the literal body and blood of Jesus, but they are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, this is important, and please hear me on this, because some of my Catholic friends have said to me, well, if you don't believe that it's the body of Jesus, uh, then, then you're just eating bread and drinking juice. No, we're obeying Jesus the same way we don't believe baptism saves us. We're obeying Jesus. We don't believe the anointing with oil heals us. We're obeying the word of God. And as we obey, we expect the presence of God to be with us. Does that make sense? So symbolism is important, but you don't want to read more into symbolism than what it is. Now, here are some things that I think you need to understand about prophetic preaching and what we're looking at right now in all this. It's optimistic, as I was telling you. It's not fatalistic. Number one, God promised the land to Israel. God promised the Holy Land to Israel with certain terms and conditions. Now, you're used to terms and conditions when you've signed contracts or you've bought a product, and there's terms and conditions that come along with it. In Genesis chapter 13 and verse 15 God says, I'm giving all of this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a what kind of possession? A permanent possession. Well, you go, wow, if it's permanent, then they can never lose it. Oh, yes, they can. If you remember Deuteronomy 29 through 30, God says, if you break these terms and conditions, we've been talking about the promises of God, a series I've been preaching called I Promise. There are covenantal promises that God says, I'm going to keep no matter what you do. And then there are conditional promises, terms and conditions, that if you'll do this. And God says, if you break these terms and conditions, I will drive you out of the land. I will allow your enemies to drive you out of the land. But if you honor them, I will keep you safe in the land. I will make the rain fall upon you. Last week, we talked about the Nile River in Egypt. But here in Israel, they had to depend upon the rains and God showed them his supremacy over the weather, just like he showed them his supremacy over the Nile. But he also says, if you repent, I will restore you. Let's go all the way back for just a second. Where did we start with the book of Zechariah? Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. Haggai was preaching about rebuilding the temple. The people got discouraged. They were few. Zechariah was preaching. They're wanting to get the the Babylonian refugees to leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem and help them build. And so what you're looking at now, and I mentioned this last week in case you don't remember, probably at this point that temple had been finished and they're still rebuilding the city, but the people were slipping back into their old ways. For instance, 
People have been telling me all the time, Pastor, I know, I know. And I'm, you know, I'm going to meddle in your business right here for just a moment, okay? I'm going to get in your face just a little bit. I know, I know, I need to be back in church. We just got out of the habit on COVID. Break the habit. The enemy wants to keep you out of church. The enemy wants to keep you out of fellowship with God's people. You need to be back in church, okay? You need to be back. You just can't use that as an excuse when Jesus comes again that, oh, I didn't have time or I was out of the habit. Remember, obedience invites the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit this evening. So God says the land belongs to them, but he can revoke and he can restore. Secondly, God says, I will gather my people back with purposeful power. God has a purpose. I know with all my heart. I've had too many doctors and surgeons tell me God healed me. But the same God who healed me can revoke my good health if I backslide and turn against him. So I, I choose not out of fear and not out of drudgery. I love him with all my heart. I choose to serve him, and I find purposeful power to fulfill what God has called me to do. Look at Jeremiah 30, verse 10. God's gathering his people back to Israel for purposeful power. I will bring you home again. I I, God saying, it's going to be my work, bring you home again from distant lands. Your children will return from exile, and Israel will return to a life of peace and quiet, so no one will terrorize them. Boy, isn't that something we want for Israel tonight? And I give you some other passages you can look at there later. And then finally, and this is where I want to kind of close tonight. And kind of because you need to be back here for next week's messages as I just go through verse by verse with chapter 12. Prophetic preaching, prophecy should always lead us to prayer and witness. Prophecy should not only lead us to live a holy life, but it should lead us to prayer and witness. And I give you several verses of scripture there. How Moses interceded for the people of God. How Samuel interceded for the people of God. How Samuel said, even though when you sin, I will intercede for you. How Stephen interceded for those that were stoning them to death. How Paul said, I could wish that I was accursed in order that Israel might be saved. And he's praying for them. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. You cannot bring souls to God if you do not go to God yourself. You can't bring lost people to Jesus intellectually You have to be someone that has a living relationship, getting close to him, worshiping him. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, listen to what the the, the Bible says about Jesus. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Natalie, Jesus is praying for you tonight. He's praying for your daughter tonight. Isn't that encouraging? He's praying for my grandson, Josiah, tonight. Come on, victory. He's praying for you. He's always interceding. And look at this. He saves all of those who come to him. That should be our prayer. God, draw. imagine what would happen at Woodland on this Father's Day if we all focused at least one hour a day for the rest of the week. We're going to pray that lost people would come to know Jesus Christ. Imagine what would happen in our community if we determined to do that. And you say, well, Pastor, I don't know how to pray. Look at Romans 8, 26. If you believe this, I want you to say amen. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We talked about weaknesses Sunday morning. For we example, we don't know what God wants to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Lean into the Holy Spirit. So four things here. Number one, prophetic preaching should remind us we are called to have godly influence. 
We are called to have godly influence. Secondly, we are called to pray. Thirdly, we are called to make disciples. I love the way Jesus says it, make disciples of the nations. My goal is not a few people out of Brownstown or Downriver. I want to see all of Downriver come to Jesus. And if America is reached for Christ, America will be saved. So let me kind of conclude this because sometimes in prophecy preaching, how can I say this politely? Just listening to some of the prophetic preaching, people are talking more about politics and policy. Now, please hear what I'm saying. Use your influence politically. Use your influence for good policy. But my job and the church's job is to preach the gospel. Politics and policy will not save America. If you want to save children from abortion, lead a mother, lead a father to Christ. If you want to save people from making terrible mistakes for their children about gender identity, lead them to Christ where they have confidence that God made them. Not one time in the Bible, listen, this is important, not one time in the Bible does God ever say to me, you need to find out who you are. He tells me who I am. I know who I am in Christ Jesus tonight. I'm a child of God. I am forgiven. I am on my way to heaven tonight. And God gives you that confidence. Now, I, again, I'm saying let's, let's use whatever influence God has given us politically. But the job of the church is not politics. The job of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to pray for our lost neighbors. And before you talk to them about Jesus, talk to Jesus about them and see what a difference it will make in your conversations. Well, I hope this helps you because this is my goal whenever I'm trying to do prophetic preaching or teaching prophecy. And boy, as we look at uh, Zechariah 12 and 13, I promise you, you are in for a prophetic ride, okay? God bless you. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to have a Q&A session right here at the church tonight. Thanks for joining us this evening. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecies of the Scripture. We thank you for pastors who labor, Lord, diligently to preach line by line, verse by verse, precept upon precept, what your word says about prophetic preaching. And Lord, we pray that you will deliver us from being fascinated, Lord, with drama and instead to stay focused upon the promises and the call to repent of our sins and to follow after Jesus. Would you grant us purposeful power, Lord, to be able to minister in your name, which in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Good night.